Governor Eric Greitens is about to deliver his first State of the State address. It'll be one of the first opportunities for Missourians to get a better sense on the Republican officials' public policy positions. One of the people in the audience will be State Representative Donna Berenger, who, like Greitens, is a newcomer to state politics. The St. Louis Democrat joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. So let's hit the music. This is the Politically Speaking podcast, a candid conversation with the Show Me State's biggest political newsmakers. I'm Jason Merzenbaum. And I'm Joe Manis. That's Eric Greitens, Navy <laughs> SEALs running for governor. And I'm really, really glad to be on with you, Jason and Joe. I'm going to push back on these regulators. I'm doing this for the people. I was encouraged along the way, not just by my family, but by a lot of teachers and professors and knew when I was in college that I would run for office someday. We're very excited about the prospect of having some more free market solutions. Even though after the conversation, I still might not agree. We want our listeners to get a real sense of what drives these people. They're actually people with a story to tell. And welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter from St. Louis Public Radio. It is Friday, January 13th. And for those listening to this on a later date, this is the date of this monstrous ice storm that is about to hit the St. Louis region. I am in St. Louis Public Radio studios, but Joe Manis is taking the day off to avoid the commute. And we have via phone our guest for today, who will be talking about her impressions of the General Assembly and of Governor Eric Greitens. Our special guest today is... Donna Berenger. A a state representative from the 82nd District, is that correct? That is correct. Now, before we go any further, can you just give our listeners a sense of what your district encompasses, which parts of St. Louis City it takes in? Okay, well, um, in case the listeners aren't aware, I served as the 16th Ward Alderman for almost 14 years in the city of St. Louis, and the 82nd District takes in all of the 16th Ward, which is St. Louis Hills, Southampton, Parkway Gardens, so it's everything um, on the other side of River de Pere, starting uh, where Chippewa crosses over River de Pere, and then moves towards um, uh, Gravois. And so I picked up Lindenwood, uh, Princeton Heights, a little bit of Tilly's, and the areas towards Morgan Ford. So it basically takes in most of the southwest side and parts of South St. Louis. Is that fair to say as, as a general description? Yes. And, and um, as you kind of mentioned on the outset, this is a, a big transition for you. You were on the St. Louis Board of Aldermen, I think for 13 years, 14 years? Almost 14. And uh, you, you have decided to give up the, the safety of an all-democratic body and head to Jefferson City to become part of the Democratic superminority. Um, I kind of had some inklings that you were interested in doing this. You're from Jefferson City originally. You had done some work. Um, with children's advocacy in Jefferson City, in addition to your public service. But what prompted you to make the transition from city politics to state politics, and what have been your impressions so far? Well, uh, working at the, the local city level gave me experience of understanding our budget, uh, what happens to the city based on any laws or legislation at the state level, and so with term limits, um, you can only serve uh, four 
uh, four terms or eight years as a state rep, and I saw that uh, the state rep was going to be termed out, and I wanted to take my experience at the city level and apply it to uh, the state level. And that's important because, you know, the city struggles, and a lot of times um, the impact of legislation done in, in Jefferson City isn't always known, and then it's too late sometimes. As I'm sure that you know, some of your fellow newcomers who represent St. Louis City districts had to go through arduous and dramatic Democratic primaries to get to Jefferson City. You did not have a Democratic primary, although you did have a Republican opponent in a district that still very Democratic, but has a lot of Republicans in it. Were you surprised that, you know, I'm not saying that you didn't work hard to get there, and, and work hard over the last 13 or 14 years to cultivate the political support that got to got to the point where you are now. But were you surprised that you didn't have a Democratic primary and your experience may have been different than, say, Peter Meredith or Bruce Franks or Fred Wessels or anybody else who's new? Um, I'm not – I never assume that, you know, I won't have a primary or a general. So at all times – when I am in office, I always think every day is, is an important day and making sure I do the best I can and get the message to the people I represent and always make sure they can get to me. And I feel that's why someone would say, well, to run against her, it's going to be difficult, not because I have lots of money to run a race, but rather because I do work hard and I do represent the people as best I can. Obviously, city politics is different from state politics. City politics, you deal with a lot more localized issues, though some are are broader than others. State politics, you kind of get into broader fiscal, social, and and governmental issues. How would you kind of describe yourself as as a state politician? I've heard others describe you as moderate to conservative, but I'd like you to describe kind of your, your philosophy that you're taking to the state legislature and and how you're going to look at certain issues? Well, (laughs) I guess you could call me a pragmatist. I look at each piece of legislation. I see how it impacts the people I represent, and then I see how it impacts outside of the people I represent and see how it impacts the state of Missouri. I'm always trying to see if it has a fiscal note attached. Will it be a burden on the taxpayers? Or the other thing that I do tend to look at that others may not is the unintended consequences of the legislation. Because sometimes on the onset, when you look at legislation, it it seems simply, oh, that makes sense. But then when you look further down the road, you say, well, maybe that may be an issue. So we need to consider that as well. So that is really how I, I look at each piece of legislation individually. I And I, I weigh the the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Um, that is the way I've always done it. And I, I asked this of, of your fellow newcomer, State Representative Fred Wessels, when he was on the show. You're, you're in, you, you were in a situation before on the Board of Aldermen where you were able to, to get a lot done. As you mentioned, you're a pragmatist, and you often were, were in the majority coalition in the Board of Aldermen to get a lot of things done. Now you're moving to a situation where Democrats are heavily outnumbered, um, and and as I mentioned on the outset, Democrats are in a super minority. So in, in your first few days in Jefferson City, and I know that you've only been a state representative for, for I think, less than 10 or 15 days now, 
How is it different? And how are you kind of dealing with this reality that in order for a Democratic state representative to get things done, they're really going to have to work with with Republicans and obviously other Democrats in St. Louis to, to build the most consensus possible? Well, it is quite the change. I, I will tell you that. There are 163 state representatives. Of those 163, there are only 46 Democrats. Of those 46 Democrats, almost half are freshmen. So you're talking about a large group that's um, on a learning curve at this point. And understanding the process and the history of some legislation uh, needs to be understood. The advantage I have is that um, in being an alderman, I have an understanding of the process. So I do understand that the Speaker of the House is much like the President of the Board of Aldermen in, in, in their duties. So from that perspective, it is very helpful. Uh, I was told that usually the first month, January, is a time where, you know, they, they set up the committees and you kind of get your bearings straight. Well, everyone that's there, including the people who've been there for like 20 years, said they've never quite seen anything like what has happened in just the first 10 days of us being in office. I was sworn in on January 4th, and um, on January 9th, when the governor was sworn in, we, were, we already had a bill uh, heard and sent out of committee. So we already perfected a bill on the floor of the House yesterday, and that's how quickly things are going. So it's literally at the speed of light. So it's, it's kind of uh, difficult to grasp some of the things that are happening, but with the background at the Board of Aldermen, it has helped me understanding um, where the bills will be assigned, how they're heard. But for others, and with the term limits, you've got a, a lot of new freshmen. So um, it's, been, uh, it's been very quick. Well, let's talk about the, the couple of issues that have come on the forefront. I think the bill that you were alluding to was, was legislation sponsored by State Representative Justin Alferman that would restrict how lobbyists can give public officials gifts. I think it passed and was perfected by an overwhelming amount, but I know that some of your Democratic colleagues were pointing to some of the elements of the bill that made it not a complete lobbyist gift ban. Um, give me a sense of, of, of your take on that legislation and, and kind of what your, your Democratic and Republican colleagues were feeling when that came to a, a lightning-quick vote, as you said. Um, well, I can tell you, because I'm new, um, I'm not used to um, the amount of what goes what the lobbyists give the elected officials and what they offer the elected officials. So th- that really, in a true sense, is, is almost very new to me. And my background has always been, um, I've been all about uh, ethics. So um, I have no problem with the, the lobbyist banning. I think with the people who weren't originally, they wanted to amend it because they felt that there were some loopholes in it. And I understand that. And they did make some amendments. So the sponsor did amend his bill and it did pass overwhelmingly. Uh, and while it's not perfect, it's a start. So it, it's, it's, it, we had nothing prior. Now we have something. So from that perspective, I think it's a good start. Are you telling me that when you were the 16th Ward Alderman, lobbyists weren't buying you Beyonce tickets or, or, or buying you large steak dinners or anything like that? Uh, no. <laughs> well, well, 
I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. The other thing that I think is coming down the pipeline very quickly is is right to work, which is shorthand that proponents of that policy used to describe uh, a, a law where unions and employers would no longer be able to require workers in a bargaining unit to pay dues as a condition of employment. It's a it's a it's a wordy definition, but I want to make sure, as we always do on this show, we actually explain what it is. Um, I know that you've been supportive of labor unions for a while. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that you're probably not supportive of this. But the 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 consensus is this is going to pass and it's going to pass quickly. And the best hope for organized labor in the future is to try to circulate a ballot initiative to try to overturn it in 2018. That's the backdrop. What's kind of your take of this situation that is probably going to start and and come to a conclusion in the next few weeks? Well, you are correct. The right-to-work legislation came out of committee, and it will be heard on the floor next week. So it will be voted. It will, it will more than likely pass. I will be voting against it. I am against right-to-work. And the main reason is because of the history in my family of the unions being there to make sure that wages uh, and safety were taken care of. So when the right-to-work legislation passes next week, it will basically it will harm the unions in the way of their ability to collect dues and their ability to do what they do, which is work on you know collective bargaining. Now, what when I said earlier about unintended consequences, one of the things that concerns me that I haven't had an, uh, an answer to is, you know, down the road, if, if the unions don't have the funding they currently have, then all the apprentice programs, all the safety training they do, will need to go away. Who's, who's going to pay for that? So that, that has been one of my questions. Um, not to say that I've gone directly to someone and said, answer this for me, but rather I, I've been sitting back you know, saying, well, what does happen? Because that is one of the, you know, the reasons you want the unions is because they have the training. And so when someone's on the job, you know, they know the OSHA rules, you know that they know this, they're, they've been safety trained. And who will do that if, you're, if, if the unions have no funds to put those th- together? Well, I've talked with a few people that, that know labor unions well and have seen how labor unions operate in right-to-work states. And basically what right-to-work does for organized labor is it really puts the onus on them to prove to their membership that they matter and that they sh- that their members should pay the dues. In some states like Nevada, unions have been very successful at that effort. They've been less successful in other states. Have you gotten a sense from maybe talking with representatives of organized labor, are they ready to rise to that challenge to make sure that the lay members know that the unions matter and that they should continue to to pay dues under this new reality? Um, I have not had a direct conversation, but what what I can tell you is they know it's coming, so they're getting ready for it. They're doing the best they can. I, I know the frustration level. I guess what I always go back to is it's important to understand and know your history because there was a time when people, you know, did not get paid wages that justified being able to, you know, make a living or feed, put food on the table. Um, My uncles, now this was years ago, back in the 30s, they would go to Union and Natural Bridge, 
and the trucks would pull up, and they'd say, get in this line if you work for a dollar a day. And then they'd move over and they'd say, okay, get in this line if you work for 50 cents a day. And then they'd go over and they'd say, okay, get in this line if you work for 25 cents a day. Which line do you think they took first to fill up the trucks? Those that would work for 25 cents a day. So it's important people know that what they have in the workplace today is because of those who fought to make sure they have what they have. So I have, like I said, a historical sense and an emotional tie of what it was like uh, for large families trying to feed those large families in the day when it was difficult to get good wages. I know that Democrats recently got their committee assignments. Which ones did you get and, and corresponded to that question? What are going to be some issues that you think you're going to be especially interested in over the next few years? Um, I have three committees, standing committees, and I have crime prevention and public safety. I have government efficiency and local government. In crime prevention and public safety, uh, I can't say how many. I want to say that there's like 15 bills. There's um, the main one that there's multiple of is called the Blue Alert and that uh, how you have the amber alert when a child's been kidnapped a blue alert would let someone know that uh, a first responder has been shot or is in harm's way so a blue alert would go out i know that's in that committee in government efficiency the one that i'm we should all be keeping a very close eye on is what's called the real id compliance and basically what happened was i apologize i don't have the exact year but uh, we made the Missouri driver's license noncompliant with federal regulations. So we have one year to write that by fixing the Missouri driver's license, because right now if you wanted to go on a base, you, or the Missouri driver's license does not comply, and they wouldn't accept it as ID. If we don't, comply, if we don't change the driver's license, then after 2017, if you want to fly, you'd have to have a passport within the United States because they will not take the Missouri driver's license. So I know that there's at least three bills introduced to address that, and I'm sure because of that it will happen because I can't see how you would want Missourians to have to go out and get passports. It's very expensive. It's, a, it's timely. So I know that's on the burner in government efficiency. On local government, it's mostly about what local governments are wanting to do in their areas, whether it be taxing themselves for the purpose of public safety or utilities. But even after a bill um, would come out of these committees, then they'd ha they have to go to the rules committee uh, before they even go to the floor. So there were over a, there's over 465 bills filed. There's a lot of bills. So I, um, I'm hoping we're not going to be going as quickly as we have like with the House Bill 60, which is the banning of the God, uh, lobbyist gifts. So we have a lot in front of us. Well, I wanted to touch on the, the Blue Alert uh, bill because that's an issue that's pertinent not only to you but also to myself. We're, we, we both live in St. Louis Hills. Um, the southwest side just dealt with a, a near tragedy with Sergeant Tom Lake getting shot, I think, a few weeks ago. Thankfully, he was not killed he, he's actually lucid enough to where I was able to, to interview him at the Board of Aldermen. 
I, I don't use this term a lot, but he is a, a true blue hero for for not only what he did that night, but his service on the St. St. Louis Police Department. I'm asking about that situation because as soon as as soon as that happened, I think news spread very, very quickly that a police officer had been shot through social media, through traditional media. And I'm just curious, given that you were probably monitoring that situation very, very closely, would would a blue alert or would would something that's government uh, produced like that, would it have helped that situation more? rather than using the traditional sources and n- more non-traditional sources of media to get the word out that a, a terrible situation like this has happened? I can I can honestly tell you because there's multiple pieces of legislation, and I've not read through each one of them as to what it specifically states. But I, I, can, I can tell you that uh, emotionally uh, a blue alert uh, would make people just take more notice. And in this case, I think um, what happened with us getting the word out, and because everyone was so emotionally tied to it, is that it made everyone start looking for the suspected cars. So I think the, the person who shot Sergeant Lake was caught much quickly, quicker because of that. And so I feel the blue alert might um, bring people to – pay attention to the cars on the road around them or something that doesn't quite look right because they might feel it might help uh, if they know that someone has shot police officers and they're out trying to find them. I can't guarantee that's what's in the legislation, but I, I would think just from that alone, just making people aware would make them um, be helpful to the police. And obviously if they spot something suspicious and they see this on the blue alert, the impetus would be to call the police, not to necessarily try to do something themselves. I, that would be my personal advice, but I assume that that would be kind of the idea behind the blue alert, that if you see something, you call law enforcement as quickly as possible. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. The police would never want anyone to take action. That would never be what they would want. They would just want the information so that they could take the action. I think sometimes you just, you know, you're just not paying attention. And so when someone says, be on the lookout for this, then all of a sudden you are on the lookout. So from that perspective, I do think it would be helpful. This particular issue has been a priority for Governor Eric Greitens, who is a complete newcomer to electoral politics. Um, I, I wanted to just ask you what your general impressions are of him. I'm not sure if you've gotten a chance to, to talk with him a lot, but I know that He was just inaugurated. He's about to have his state of the state address. And he just won a very competitive gubernatorial race that I think is going to have major consequences for Missouri down the road. What are your general impressions of of the new governor? Well, you are correct. I have not had a personal conversation with him, and I hope that 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 does occur. But he's very busy right now Um, in his swearing in speech. He was not very specific about how we're going to, it's almost a $465 million budget deficit that the state's going to have and how we're going to address that. But I'm looking forward to his State of the State address on January 17th um, in Jefferson City so that I can hear, you know, what it is, what he's outlined he's going to do, and how to move forward. Um, I can tell you that 
um, I was at the Martin Luther King uh, event in Jefferson City where he spoke, and I was very much impressed with what he said at that event just because um, it was very heartfelt and uh, it came across, you know, very, very effective. And so I'm looking forward to his State of State address. I heard from some of the members of the the Legislative Black Caucus that they had never seen Governor Nixon at one of those events, and they were just happy that Governor Greitens showed up and 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 talked at that. Even if I, I'm sure that issue wise, Democrats up and down the spectrum are going to disagree with him on a lot of issues, but I, I mention that too because Governor Greitens is one of the first governors in a long time to have lived in the city of St. Louis before he was elected governor. I think that there's kind of a mixed assessment of what that means for city policymakers like yourselves. I have an, I have a kind of an assumption that if somebody lives in a place, they kind of understand some of the problems more than just if somebody tells them about that. But do you think that could be a benefit down down the road that Governor Greitens obviously knows the city of St. Louis and St. Louis County pretty well because he, he grew up there and he was from there immediately before he became governor? The first thing I, I, I say is that, you know, this he's new. This is all new to him. And I don't think any of us could say for sure we know exactly how he will be as governor in the way of, and I mean that as in, I think we're all going to learn. And it's going to be refreshing that he does live in the city of St. Louis, so he has, you know, been exposed to some of the issues that are in the urban areas. So, like I said, I... I don't think anyone knows for sure um, exactly where the governor is on anything until he says. So I look forward to learning from him and about what his um, direction he wants to take our state. Were you surprised that for his state of the state, the, the state of the state typically involves also the release of the budget. And he announced before uh, he was inaugurated that he was not going to release the budget next week. He's going to do that at some point in February Without the budget being a part of the state of the state, does that leave the entire speech without a lot of detail about what he's going to do financially and therefore gives it kind of a different flavor than than prior state of the state speeches? I know that you, you might have been watching state of the state speeches from afar and you weren't there because you're, you're new. But I'm kind of getting I'm kind of interested to hear what you're what you think and what your Democratic colleagues think about that development. Well, that is correct. He did say he was not going to release the budget in his state of the state address, and it has traditionally always been done at that time. I think this is where it comes in that he does not have the government experience, and so he needs more time. And I, and I mean that from, you know, just knowing the process and how it works, just like we have all these incoming freshmen. If you've never done a floor debate, if you've, you know, never worked on legislation, it takes a minute or two to actually learn it. And so I think that's what he's probably doing is he's learning how the budget works, how the department works, how the money flows, because he does have to look at a $465 million deficit, and he's going to figure out how to make up that shortfall. So from from that perspective of this all being new to him, I, I can see where it's taking them time to figure out how they're going to move forward.
I want to switch gears now to to city politics and policy a little bit. A- as you know, uh, St. Louis city government is about to go through some pretty monumental changes. There's going to be a new mayor by April. The board of aldermen is going to look a lot different because there are several vacancies, including in our very own 16th ward because you were elected state representative. Um, rather than you kind of pontificate about which candidates that you support or don't support in any of those races. I wanted to go a little bit broader about what the expectations are going to be for this new crop of executive and legislative uh, leadership in the city of St. Louis, about the expectations about how they're going to have to deal with the reality in Jefferson City. Because I think St. Louis Mayor Francis Slay was able to get some things uh, to the legislature's liking, but a lot of things fell by the wayside or were outwardly rejected because of the party difference. So so you you've been there for a few a few a few days and a few weeks. What do the new leaders of St. Louis have to expect when they get sworn in about dealing with Jefferson City and, and its reality? Well, uh, a good relationship with <laughs> uh, the governor will be key and I think as you pointed out that our governor did, does, live in the city of St. Louis will be very beneficial. So from that perspective, I think that's helpful. It's also important that that outreach goes to basically the majority in the House and the Senate, that they understand what issues that we're facing. Um, A lot of times, you know, people don't understand that in the city of St. Louis, Crime is an issue, and it impacts every aspect of everything else. So you're going to have problems with keeping residents living in the city, businesses opening in the city. So we need to look at how to address crime. And right now, the city of St. Louis is so financially strapped, we don't have the funds. And so we do need to look to the state to see what is it they can do. What that is, I don't have an answer. I I do know that um, I am a bit concerned about tax credits. And while that's not directly related to uh, public safety, what it does do is it impacts development. And if we come to a halt on development, that will stifle the amount of taxes we collect in the city of St. Louis. And when we stifle the amount of taxes we collect, then we're, we're hurting our budget. And so the amount of dollars coming in for our budget is impacted. So basically you're saying, like, you're worried that the historic preservation and low-income housing tax credits are going to be curtailed. Is, is that what you were referring to, first of yes. all? I, yes. I, I wanted to ask this question, and again, this is more of a, of a general question rather than you opining on a specific candidate or person. I'm sure that you've been aware that there's been a pretty vigorous debate locally about incentives and whether they should be curtailed. It's interesting that we're, we're talking about TIFs and tax abatement. There's not a lot of talk about historic preservation or low-income housing tax credit and about their impact on development, as well as the financial impact to the state. Um, how do you think that those two things are kind of mixed with each other, that the local debate over incentives and the state debate over 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 you know historic and low income housing because it seems like if those are curtailed it may put more pressure on on the new mayor and the new board of aldermen to figure out some sort of incentive to keep spurring development what what do you think the impact will be 
if the Republicans and Governor Greitens are successful at curtailing some of the state tax credits on some of the local incentives? Well, what I what I think happens is the perception is always that we put, you know, the worst case scenarios on the front page of the paper. So in everyone's mind, when they think of tax credit, they think that we're giving money away. It's, it's giveaway money. But in effect, what the low-income tax credits and the historic tax credits, were, they're there specifically because you're trying to get development spurred in areas where market rate developers would not go. That is their true intent. We've gotten away from that. And so what's happened is, you know, the tips and the tax abatements have been used in areas where, yeah, a developer would have gone in there. But if you're going to help me out, help me out. And so that, I understand, is what people are aware of and what's in their mind. But I don't want them, as the saying goes, to throw the baby out with the bathwater. So we still need these tax credits. They still need to happen in areas where development otherwise would not occur. And that's not just in your urban areas. It's also in your rural areas. So this isn't just an urban issue. It is a development issue in areas where it would not otherwise happen and it would impact. And I don't, I don't have an answer on how you would do it without those incentives. I want to ask a, a broader political question. Um, our part of St. Louis, the southwest side of the city, has pretty high voting turnout wards. I think the 16th has con- continuously been the highest turnout ward in many elections. What what impact do you think the Southwest side is going to have on the elections in March and April, with the also caveat that there are a lot of Republicans that live in our neck of the woods? It's kind of an open question about whether they're going to take Democratic ballots or Republican ballots when some of the races have Republicans in it. Just broadly, how do you think, especially your state representative district, is going to be important or maybe not important to the the crazy campaign that's about to unfold? Well, I mean, I can't express enough how important this next mayor's race is. So I would want people to take the time and figure out which candidate uh, would best serve as the next mayor of the city of St. Louis. We're at a, as I say, and I've said, we're at a tipping point And so we have to have a mayor that's going to help us out of our struggles as well, because our budget is hurting, too. So we have to have someone who's going to be able to take that on, along with all the crime issues in public safety. Um, The southwest part of the city, you are correct, my area, uh, not only has the highest voter turnout, it has the highest Republican turnout. Um, I would think that they're going to have to make their decision on whether or not they're going to take a Democratic ballot in order to, if they want to choose a Democrat um, candidate for mayor. And that will be their decision. It's happened in the past, uh, historically, where the Republicans do pull a Democratic ballot in the primary. Yeah, so, and that is, that is definitely the case because it's a it, this is a heavily Democratic city. Republicans that you know, settle in the city are not naive. They probably know that unless there are extraordinary circumstances, Republicans are not going to get elected to either citywide or even aldermanic offices. So they want to say of who their city elected officials are, and they typically cross over. That's been my assumption. I think that's yours as well. Is that correct? 
It is. The example would be myself, that I have Republicans who have historically voted for me as a Democrat. Absolutely. And I think that kind of also changes the, the, the way either mayoral candidates or aldermanic candidates that are running in the southwest side have to proceed. I, I know that there is kind of this impulse to be as democratic and talk as much about democratic you know, talking points as possible. But I think if you go a little too far overboard, you may alienate a large block of voters that you may need to win some of those races. And that's kind of, I think, the, the balancing act. The current mayor, St. Louis Mayor Francis Slay, has has played over his career. And I imagine that the five or six major candidates running for mayor are kind of putting those calculations in play as well. Is that kind of your understanding? Um, I'm I'm hoping that they, you know, that that's how they're looking at it. I, I have not seen a debate yet. Um, I look forward to a debate. I know that the St. Louis Hills is for sure having a debate, and I I can't wait to see all the candidates and hear what they have to say. Well, maybe it'll happen on my front lawn, and it'll be a, a an outdoor uh, mayoral debate. But I, I, considering it'll be either in January or February, uh, that would probably make the candidates very, very, very cold. So I'm assuming yes, it it'll would. be in, indoors. Well, uh, Representative, I just wanted to thank you for taking time during this ice storm to to record our show. I know no that I know that uh, we typically have people in studio, and I know that uh, Richard Callow will needle me on Twitter for having somebody over the phone. But our the safety of everybody is kind of paramount in in today, and we did want to get you on before the state of the state. So for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. Follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. And where can we follow you on Twitter and, and, and any other part of the World Wide Web? <laughs> STL Donaby is my Twitter handle.